If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Josh Levine. I'm Slate's sports editor and the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. It's August 12th, 2016, and this is your Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra. On Thursday in Rio, Fiji won its first Olympic medal ever, thrashing Great Britain 43-7 to win gold in Rugby Sevens. That gives one the sense that if Rugby Sevens had been in the Games prior to 2016, Fiji would have a lot more medals. As expected, American gymnast Simone Biles won the women's individual all-around. She beat her teammate Allie Raceman, who got silver. She won by 1.759 points. That might not sound like a lot, but this was a mismatch on the order of a rugby sevens match between Fiji and Great Britain. Biles' margin of victory was greater than that in every women's individual all-around final between 1980 and 2012 combined. And in the pool, Michael Phelps continued the blowout theme, winning the 200-meter individual medley by two seconds over Kosuke Hagino of Japan with a blue-haired Ryan Lochte finishing fifth in his final race in Rio. Here's how the race sounded on Canadian television. He has never, ever beaten Michael Phelps in this competition in the Olympic Games, but Ryan Lochte is going for it. Pereira is making his run, and Phelps doesn't look like he has this one in him. Ryan Lochte going to for his 13th career medal, saving the best for last. Finally, he's going to do it. Ryan Lochte is going to beat Michael Phelps in this event in the games, and Phelps might not even make the podium. I apologize. I got my lanes mixed up. 
That was Elliot Friedman of the CBC, who was confused about which lane which American was swimming in. After the race, he tweeted out, I'm sorry, everyone. I blew it. No excuses, which makes me feel very bad for the guy and also affirms that he is, in fact, Canadian. On August 9th, Friedman had tweeted, finally, a caparina with a picture of a refreshing looking drink. If you see a sad looking Canadian holding a microphone, maybe tell him the next one is on you. Also on Thursday, the United States women's field hockey team beat India three to nothing to extend their undefeated run in Rio to four games. The Americans who play Great Britain on Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern have already secured a spot in Monday's quarterfinals. The U.S. women, who have already improved on their finish from the 2012 Olympic tournament, are trying to win their first medal since securing the bronze in 1984 in Los Angeles. That was their best ever finish in uh, the Olympic field hockey tournament. Field hockey was first in the Olympics in 1908, but the women's game wasn't added to the program until 1980. The U.S. team missed out that first year due to the boycott of the games in Moscow. So those 1984 L.A. games were the first ever for the U.S. women's national team at the Olympics. We're lucky to be joined now by women who span the United States' entire Olympic field hockey history. First on the phone with us from North Carolina is Karen Shelton, who is a starting defender on that 84 team. She's been the head coach at the University of North Carolina since 1981 where she's won six national titles and has coached many Olympians, including five on this year's squad. Hello, Karen. Hello, Josh. And with us on the phone from Rio is two-time Olympian Michelle Vitisse. Michelle is a forward on this year's team, and she scored in the Americans' 2-1 to win over Australia. Michelle graduated from UVA in 2013, so we have a couple of veterans of the ACC Field Hockey Wars with us. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Josh. So you guys finished 12th in London, Michelle. That was last in the 12-team field. One of your teammates told the LA Times that after that experience, you guys started defining a culture and developing a family. You have a new coach since London, Craig Parnham, and you guys are now headquartered in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the wonderfully named Spooky Nook Sports Complex, supposedly the largest indoor sports complex in the world. So those seem like really huge changes. What's been the biggest difference for you from 2012 to 2016? I think actually the biggest change in this Olympics from the previous one was that I kind of redefined what commitment meant based on the women in this group and the coaching staff. We've actually created a culture, kind of set down what we wanted to achieve and what exactly it would take to get there. And, you know, some of us didn't know because we had never been through this process before in terms of really sacrificing a lot and doing what it takes to kind of be um, where we want to be. I mean, we've kind of made a lot of strides and have developed great chemistry and been a really great team thus far. And I'm really proud of what we've done in these past three and a half to four years and actually what we're doing today. So that commitment that you guys have made, you have to make more sacrifices than, you know, most, if not all of the athletes that are in Rio. This is not a particularly remunerative sport. You have to hold off on having a career. I was watching a video that you recorded in your senior year of college where you say, I want a career doing something that I love, though I don't know what that is. Um, You didn't say that you want a career in field hockey, which, you know, there's no pro league in, in the U.S. So you have had to make the decision to commit to the sport where you're not gonna, you know, make a big amount of money from it. Yeah, actually that video, it's funny, I 
I recorded that at a time where I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue playing hockey. And I thought, you know, there was something else out there for me, something better. And I laugh about this, but I, I read a book one time that talked about how, you know, you're in your ideal element and you're in your ideal performance zone when you come across something that you're really good at and something that you love and how, how fortunate and how blessed I am to be able to do this every day, you know, and yes, this is a career, but it's not a career in, you know, and the way a lot of Americans would describe a career, you know, they would talk about, you know, money and being able to, you know, have a, have a good deal of money and be extremely comfortable. And unfortunately we don't, you know, we get paid very little, but what we get to do, and I would never choose anything else. This is one of the most amazing experiences I've ever been a part of. So Karen, let's brag on Michelle here for a minute. You've coached against her. You've watched her play. What makes her so great? Uh, well, Michelle is, uh, you know, and, and I know you're on the phone there, Michelle, but what a fierce competitor, um, and physically gifted, um, but but it's more the mentality on the field. Um, I, I, she makes things happen, uh, just and is a, is a tireless worker. And yeah, it's been fun to watch, you know, her development from, from being a freshman in college, uh, you know, and even seeing you play in high school, but, uh, to where you are today, uh, it's been fun to see that development and that maturity. Isn't that nice to hear, Michelle? <laughs> it's very nice to hear, especially coming from someone who, you know, we hated playing against, going, well, we love playing against them, but also, you know, she, she's a fantastic coach and she's coached those girls to be really tremendous players and that program is really great. Those words coming out of her mouth is very nice. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, Karen, you made the 1980 Olympic team, the one that didn't go to the Games in Moscow due to the boycott. But you were there in 1984 when you were already the coach at UNC. And that reminded me of Pat Summit, who played on the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team in 1976 when she was the coach at Tennessee. So what was it like on that first U.S. team at the Olympics? Kind of where, where did the players come from? How professionalized was it compared to today? Well, it was an amazing experience, um, and I had great coaching, Ivani Grow, and we were we were somewhat on a mission. Uh, you know, the USA had started to emerge. We we finished third in the '79 uh, World Cup, and so you know, USA for years and years and years was not competitive with with England, um, and Holland was still actually just emerging at that time. Uh, but but through our fitness, our defensive. Uh, you know, prowess and, and, and discipline. And then we had a, a good corner. And that's kind of been the story for USA um, and, and how we've been able to compete internationally up until now. Um, and so, you know, but it was a great thrill. I was very, very fortunate. Uh, you know, the proudest moment ever in my life, uh, other than the birth of my son, um, was was standing uh, in L.A. in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. It was just a great, great thrill. It just... Amazing. And and quickly give us your analysis. You just mentioned having a great corner um, for those of us who um, do not know as much about field hockey. Explain what that means and kind of assess what you've seen out of the team in 2016. Well, uh, you know, this 2016, you know, the penalty corner is a set piece uh, that it, that provides a scoring opportunity. So if you can gain a foul in the, in the shooting area, you get this set piece kind of like a corner kick in soccer. And, and forever we played great defense, and then we could get a corner and maybe score that way. We didn't have the technical skills to find space in the circle. We, you know, we just weren't as refined offensively. 
Um, but this team, uh, 2016 is, is a complete, well-rounded, well-developed team that is competing, uh, toe-to-toe with the best in the world. So we've come a long way, and, and, and particularly, I will say, in, in the last three and a half years under Craig Barnum, Yannicka Shotman, and Dave Hamilton, under their, their leadership and the team's buy-in has been critical in this whole piece, as Michelle referred to earlier. So, uh, yeah, it's been amazing to watch, and it's just so, so exciting for all of us back home that are that are cheering the team on. So, Michelle, if I ask the question of what it takes to be on the U.S. field hockey team, you've already answered that it requires, you know, a great commitment. You obviously have to be a great athlete. I could also say mm-hmm. um, it requires coming from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or Delaware. Um, you were, you were, you were born in Pennsylvania. You grew up in New Jersey. Um, you have a shared culture on this team of the, from the mid Atlantic Mm -hmm. region. Yeah. The area is just kind of saturated with really great hockey players. And that's why I think part of the reason why a lot of us come out of that area is because even growing up when you were younger, you're constantly playing against like phenomenal opposition. And I think, you know, that type of, um, like competition amongst, you know, kids, it, it puts you in a position where you just have to work your hardest, always have to prove yourself. And I think it teaches us a lot of like mental fitness and technical fitness or technical uh, skills, which I think is, is pretty important. That's, that's why a lot of us come out of that area, I think. And Karen, what do you think are kind of the keys to, you know, any sport when you do well in the Olympics, I think it's perceived as an opportunity. Okay, what are we going to do now? And I'd imagine, you know, you analogized field hockey to soccer, that there's a lot of competition there. The women's soccer team has been really successful. Um, The women's soccer team, you know, you can be more famous and make more money. Um, How do you feel like uh, you can kind of deal with the challenge of making field hockey more popular and, and getting, you know, young girls who are really good athletes interested in sports to choose field hockey over other sports? Well, I think I think one of the the things that we're going to see um, just based on the the team success right now is is this um, popularity boost. We will see a, a post Olympic boost, uh, particularly and primarily because of the exposure has been so great. NBC's coverage has been amazing. Uh, you know, when I played in '84, there were like little clips. You know, we would get on maybe for a few minutes. Every single game is is televised, and so I'm getting. Um, texts and emails from people across the country that just say, hey, it's been amazing to watch and follow the team and how exciting. And uh, and so we are going to see, um, you know, on, on the backs of the, this national team that's doing so well, uh, uh, I think a popularity boost. We're going to get more kids interested. They're going to see this. They're going to want to play. You know, and there are a lot of kids that play soccer. It's a, lot, it's a hugely popular sport. Perhaps they'll see there's other options in a sport that's similar that they could try. Um, so I just I think it's going to be amazing, and I hope we take advantage of uh, you know kind of a post Olympic tour. I'm sure that there are already plans uh, in in the making for that. And when you have a player named Katie Bam who is as good as Katie Bam is, there's so much so much marketing opportunity there. We we have to use that. <laughs> Absolutely, and she's banging them in right now. Um, she certainly is. Uh, all right, Michelle, um, just give us a little bit of a taste of what it's been like in Rio. I think in the past, when you were 
far away at an Olympics, it was a little bit harder to stay in touch with how people were perceiving you back home. But now, you know, you've you're on Twitter. Um, you're presumably getting texts. Like, how many texts are you getting per day? Like, what are you hearing? And what's your sense of of how you guys, what the reaction is back home? I, I, I actually heard that, like, like Karen had said, that the embassy coverage is pretty awesome and they're doing a really good job of covering it, which I'm pretty excited about. I'm getting a lot of texts from people that are really close to me. Obviously, my family's not here. They did not decide to come, but I'm getting... Um, a lot of texts from good friends and, and obviously family members. And I'm getting a lot of Facebook notifications from, you know, people that are from the past, like people from a good bit ago that kind of come out of the woodworks and, you know, are, they love to be a part of it. The whole experience is amazing because so many people can take part and, you know, experience it with you. And I think that's one of the greatest things about social media is that it has this ability to connect everyone. And I think it's really fun for people, you know, to be able to reach out to us, send us whatever they want, tag us in photos, you know, and living crush Wednesdays and stuff like that. So I think, it, to me, it, it, I feel very supported from people back home. And I feel like NBC is doing a phenomenal job of showing the gritty sides of us. It's really fun to watch, I think, and especially the high pace that we play at. There's, there's nothing that an Olympian likes better than getting a Facebook message that's like, hey, I went to middle school with you in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I know you're probably busy, but just, yeah. like, hit me up. <laughs> Well, no, it's not even that. It's just keep going, you know, keep rolling through. But, you know, I just really like supportive words, which it means a lot. No one's ever like, you know, text me back, do any of that. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's not too much too open-ended. I, I kind of like that piece of it because I, I like to stay very much removed from it. I don't like to partake in social media unless it's kind of something, you know, really funny or one-off instance. But I'm, you know, not reading too much of the papers, not doing anything about it, which is nice. So, it's right. nice to not have the responsibility to respond to everyone. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. All right, so you guys have yeah. ga- a game this weekend. Um, you got a quarterfinal on Monday. We'll all be cheering you on, Karen. If, if it's okay with you, um, maybe we can get a little bit of a motivational speech, a short one, or just you know tell tell <laughs> tell Michelle what we're looking for. Well, listen, they've got coaches that are, are amazing, and, and so my words would just be one of support. Uh, it is so fun to watch you guys play. I love the up-tempo. You work relentlessly and tirelessly. Um, you know, the substitutions have been amazing. You know, so I think everybody back home trusts what you're doing, respects the commitment and the sacrifices you've made together, the unity that you all have, and um, and we just want you to keep it going. Just stay focused. I know your coaches are telling you one game at a time, and uh, but you have nothing but everyone's support and admiration. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, both. Best of luck uh, to you, Michelle, and Karen, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you so much. Hey, Michelle, it's good to be on the phone with you. Keep it going. Proud of you. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Take care. Good luck okay. in preseason. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. That was Karen Shelton, starting defender on the 1984 Olympic field hockey team and the head coach now at the University of North Carolina, and Michelle Vatisse two-time Olympian, forward on the 2016 team, goal scorer, and the Americans win over Australia. On Friday morning in Rio, a pair of British women won their second consecutive Olympic gold in the women's coxless pairs. That victory extended their undefeated streak in all competitions to five years. 
Here's David Epstein, a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene, to tell us about these remarkable rowers, the best athletes at the 2016 Olympics that you probably haven't heard of. Okay, I don't want to implicate you, the listener. Let me say, here's David Epstein to tell us about the best athletes at the 2016 Olympics that I hadn't heard of. There were a couple of moments this morning during the women's coxless pair rowing event when the race was reminiscent of a Katie Ledecky performance. That is, the British pair of Heather Stanning and Helen Glover were so far out in front that if you took a screenshot, they would have been the only ones in it. The race, which is about a mile and a quarter long, narrowed toward the finish, but Glover and Stanning held on for the win and extended a five-year undefeated streak. That is, they won gold at the 2012 Olympics, they won the world championships in 2013, 2014, 2015, and now they've won gold in 2016, and they won every single race in between. Just as staggering as how good they are is how quickly they got this good. Heather Stanning didn't start rowing until university, but Helen Glover, she's only been rowing for eight years total. So she's been undefeated for five of the eight years that she's been involved in the sport. By the age of 22, when many Olympic athletes are hitting their prime, Glover had never rowed at all. She'd played field hockey, tennis, and had been a swimmer. And then she decided to go to one of the talent identification programs that Great Britain started in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics. In 2008, she was one of about 4,500 British women who were taken in and given a chance to show whether they had the stuff that a gold medal rower is made of. The talent identification program in this case was called Sporting Giants. So the first requirement for women was that they had to be at least 5 feet 11 inches tall between the ages of 16 and 25, and have some sort of athletic background, but none had any rowing experience. Helen Glover fit the bill. Not only is she tall, but she has long limbs and a low what's called brachial index. That's the ratio of the forearm to the total arm. And a short one, a short forearm compared to the total arm, actually gives better leverage for pulling. So it's great for pulling things, not so good for throwing things. In 2009, just one year after Glover first set foot in a rowboat, she won gold in the women's single skull at a famous regatta. The next year, with Stanning, in Glover's second year ever of rowing, the pair won silver at the World Championships. Since then, they've been almost unbeatable, and for the last five years, they've been completely unbeatable. Great Britain has had incredible success with talent identification programs since they were awarded the Olympics, finding several golds in the rough. For now, the question is just how long can Glover and Stanning go undefeated? So when you talk about Biles and Phelps and Ledecky this Olympics, make sure to throw Glover and Stanning in the mix. David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Now it is time for a quick after torch. Today's after torch is the flunge, the move that led American Daryl Homer to a silver in the saber. A flunge is a portmanteau of flying and lunge. It's one of my favorite Olympic portmanteaus. It is used pretty extensively by some people, according to uh, the fencing forum. 
a fencing forum entitled The Fencing Forum. It's a real change of pace compared to a step or a lunge, but it's very hard to execute without withdrawing your arm, thus leaving you open for an attack on preparation. So keep that in mind while flunging. I'm going to transition here from sword play to gun play. Let's go back in time to a week ago when 19-year-old American Jenny Thrasher won the first gold medal of the Rio Games in the 10-meter air rifle. As Justin Peters pointed out on Slate, Thrasher was wearing a really kick-ass jacket. He described it as Swiss Guard meets Mad Max. As Justin noted, air riflists wear padded leather or canvas jackets to maximize stability. Basically, the shooting suits are very heavy and bind up the shooter so it's easier to take a steady shot. Again, according to Justin, the rule book of the International Shooting Sport Federation states that the clothing worn by athletes in international class competitions must convey positive images of shooting athletes as Olympic sport athletes. So I run around on the internet and, you know, I covet one of these these jackets. Um, it's my kind of favorite item from the Olympics. Wanted to figure out how much my own personalized shooting jacket would cost. According to the website 10.9.com, the motto of which is, we don't just sell gear, we sell success. The one to get is uh, the Super Advantage Extra Shooting Jacket number 123. That's a special order, but let me read off what some of the characteristics are. It's definitely worth it. Sauer takes a different approach to finding just the right material for their true top-of-the-line shooting clothes. Canvas is a proven stiff material, but it softens terribly over time. The solution? Rubber. By using cloth-lined rubber on the back and part of the front, Sauer has created a jacket whose stiffness and support never changes. Because canvas is so durable, it still has a place in the design of a jacket or pants, so you'll find it on Sauer's clothes on the sleeves, chest, etc. Sauer has mastered the art of fitting the contours of the body. They're the only one of our clothing vendors who pre-mount the buttons. And 19 out of 20 times, the shooter says the button positions are perfect. Just makes you wonder a little bit about that one out of 20 shooters who's very uh, upset about button placement. If you're concerned that there's not leather, leather is used as well on the trim, the pocket, the entire front buttoning strip, even the buttonhole edges. It lasts forever and looks great. How much is this going to cost you? Well, it's $1,105.33, but you cannot find a better shooting jacket anywhere, according to the five minutes of internet research I just did. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Do it. It'll be fun. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. Facebook.com slash hang up and listen is the URL. Our intern is Laura Wagner. The producers of the Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra are Afim Shapiro and Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Ralph Metcalf, and thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.